Welcome to the Altamont Enterprise Podcast. This is Melissa Hale Spencer, and I feel very thrilled to have with me today Dr. Harry Ringermacher, and he came with his wife, Judy Keating. They are both very smart people, <laughs> Mensa members. I found Dr. Ringermacher in the little community calendar notice in our newspaper because of a notice his wife had sent in. He's going to be speaking, and I'll get this plug out of the way first, on Friday, July 28th at the Dudley Observatory Program in the Octagon Barn in Knox, to which the public is invited for free, to talk about the solar eclipse, which is happening on August 21st. So welcome. And I guess we'll start off with talking a little about the eclipse. So what is it that people in our area should know as they look forward to August 21st? Well, the, the eclipse is August 21st. That's a Monday. And uh, it, it will max at 1.22. So that's totality. So that means the moon will completely cover the sun, and you'll be left with a vision of... His wife is indicating not here, so we're going to be precise. I rely on my (laughs) wife because she works for the Dudley Observatory and does a lot of the stuff. She knows quite a bit about astronomy just from the experience there. But she's right. You won't get totality here. You'll get as close as you can to totality in this area, about 75% coverage of the sun. Okay. So when I refer to totality... Um, the sun here does not fully cover the moon. The, the, the important thing the public should be aware of right off the bat is never to look at that without solar filters. Why? What, solar what glasses. Because you're looking directly at the sun. Unless there's complete coverage of the sun by the moon, in which case all you're left with is the, um, um, you know, the aurora around the sun. Um, then you can look at it, but only then, and that lasts for about two minutes, and that only happens in a strip across the United States, about 100 miles wide, running from Oregon and leaving America in South Carolina. Other than that, you will not get totality. So you run the risk of burning your burn spot in your eye if you stare at the sun. So you never look at the sun. That's rule number one, uh, unless you happen to be in this band, and only then... During a two and a half minute period, when it's dark, when it's total, then it's safe. In fact, it's so dim at that point that if you keep your glasses on, you won't see the total eclipse. But you will not see a total eclipse in the Albany area. So there are special glasses people can get. I remember yeah, as a are, child doing a pinhole thing. There are, thing there are, and they're they're fairly inexpensive. The yeah. question is, is, are they still available? I think yeah. they are. Uh, first of all, at the event we're having at the Octagon Barn, we'll be giving away free solar glasses oh, for, the, for observing the eclipse. Anybody that comes will get a pair. So from a science point of view, I mean, the rest of us are thrilled just because it's so unusual to have the world turn dark. <laughs> but if from a science point of view, what is it about an eclipse that that is interesting or that... Um, are there things you can discover because the moon is well? There are a number. The uh, th- there's two ways of looking at this. One okay. simple public view, which is absolutely fast. I personally have never seen an eclipse. I'm looking forward to going to St. Louis, 
which is on the path of totality about an hour west of St. Louis in the county. And I'm going to photograph it. Now, like I said, I've never seen a, a total eclipse myself, so I'll, I'll be thrilled when I see it. Everything I hear is that it's pretty impressive. Uh, the temperature drops once totality occurs. This is, I'm talking about a total eclipse mm-hmm. where you're fully covered. You won't get this effect here in the Albany area. But I understand birds stop singing. Um, temperature can drop as much as 10 degrees. Um, it becomes calm suddenly. There are strange shadows because the sun shines through those last seconds through the leaves, and you can see images of the sun, crescent sun, and then that disappears at totality. So from everything I understand, it's supposed to be a very impressive experience. So, so this is from an aesthetic point of view. From a scientific point of view, a total eclipse is an opportunity to look at Einstein's theory. And one of the things they like to look for is the bending of starlight around the sun. And this was, in fact, the first proof of Einstein's theory that was done around 1919 by uh, Arthur Eddington, who um, did observations in Africa and in uh, another location. Uh, and that was the first proof that Einstein was correct in his 1916-1917 uh, theory. And which theory is that? That's the theory of general relativity. And he became world famous because of that. So... Accuracy is always improving, and and they're still looking at that to see how accurate they can get it. They're down to errors of less than a fraction of a percent, which is pretty impressive for something like that. So when I talk about the bending of starlight, what the astronomers do is they'll take a photograph of the sky in the vicinity of where the total eclipse will be, you know, months before that time, say, uh, you know, or even a year before that to get the exact position of the stars. Then they take the same photographic at the same time, at the same location, with the total eclipse present over that same star field. But now the the moon is covering the sun, so you don't have that brilliance that eliminates starlight. You can't see stars around the sun when you look at the sun. It's too bright. The contrast is too great. It, It glares. But with the moon covering the sun, that blocks all of that. And, in fact, during a total eclipse, you will see the stars and the planets out in the middle of the day. At 1 o'clock in the afternoon, you'll see Mercury, um, stars all around the sun. And the astronomers will photograph those stars. And if they compare the two pictures, they'll see that the star changed position ever so slightly. And that's due to the bending of that starlight as it passes around the sun due to its gravity. Okay, here's where we're going to go a little deep. Um, could you, you brought with you a pyramid-shaped crystal device, and it was part of your way of explaining, and it had to do with the bending of light, so I'm thinking this fits in, and you can tell me if it doesn't. Your description of the universe is being like a ringing crystal, and are you able to put in simple terms what this theory consists of and how you got to it? Yeah, just a, a, I need a, a minute or two of background. Good. So I'm a physicist, but I'm, I have a Ph.D. in physics and worked for General Electric for a long time. But those areas were in experimental solid-state physics. I worked with lasers and so on. At the same time, I've always been interested in geometry, and I basically taught myself 
Einstein's theory of general relativity. Um, had a couple of official courses at, at universities on that. So I became very well acquainted with general relativity to start with. While I was working at GE, I also continued my personal studies in general relativity to the point where I knew enough and was uh, knowledgeable enough to publish papers in peer-reviewed journals. So that was, for me, a test. And that was very successful. But I was very interested in dark energy, dark matter, and cosmology in general. So that's what I'm talking about. I had developed my own background in cosmology. And in doing that, since I was interested in some of these great mysteries, especially dark matter and dark energy, which occupy most of the universe uh, that we don't understand at all, um, I developed a number of ideas and published successfully on those ideas. And those ideas relate to uh, the nature of dark matter, and that's right now still a mystery. But one of those ideas was successfully published in what you would call a blue-chip journal, the astronomical journal in astronomy. And it related to an observation I've made of existing data from supernovas. A supernova is an exploding star. And astronomers use supernovas as what are called standard candles. They all have a certain brightness, all identical and they can explode anywhere in the universe, meaning literally back in time. When you look out at the sky with a telescope, you are looking back in time, basically. So these exploding stars are, are fixed brightnesses, like a 100-watt light bulb. And you take a 100-watt light bulb and you measure its brightness one foot away from your eye, then you move it, say, 100 feet away, and it is noticeably dimmer, um, and that's known as the inverse square law. So that's how astronomers measure distances, uh, by using these supernovas as standard candles, just like light bulbs. And it's like sky. going back in time because and you're it's going so back far in time. away, it took that's that time right. to travel takes, to where the human could exactly, it, I see. Exactly, exactly. So because light travels at a finite speed, 186,000 miles a second, uh, by going further and further back uh, in distance with a telescope, you're going that same amount back in time. So astronomers collect all this data. I analyzed that data and in a new way and published on that, a completely different way of thinking about their plotting met methodology and their data, and successfully published it. So I took this data and analyzed it and discovered there were wiggles in the dimension of space. You could see this. It's a small effect. Um, and these wiggles, you know, they're technically called oscillations. And it's no different than oscillations in your, electric, in your electricity. It's, your electricity gets to your house because it's 120 volts at 120, uh, 120 cycles per second. So no one before had noticed these wiggles no one, or oscillations? No one had noticed these wiggles. So the question was, are they real? Well, we don't know exactly, but... I, I did a sufficiently good job on analyzing that, not being you know, a, an official astronomer, but just a physicist with a background in cosmology, that I was able to publish that also in the Astronomical Journal, which is um, you know, basically a pretty good achievement. So these oscillations may very well be real. If they're real, it literally means the universe is wiggling. I use the term ringing. And these wiggles are due to dark matter 
oscillating, starting right after the Big Bang. In fact, you can think of this as the Big Bang making a sudden impulse. When you whack something with a hammer, it basically goes bang, and you get sound coming out, and that sound dies away, And especially for, say, a bell or a gong. If you hit it with a hammer, you get a ringing sound out of it, and as time goes on, the ringing dies away. And that's exactly what I observe with these oscillations in the universe. So this is space itself wiggling. That's hard to conceive. <laughs> it certainly There's is. There's nothing, nothing like material. There's no matter. Wiggling. There's no metal. There's no, you know, uh, there's nothing there. It's nothingness. But conceptually and mathematically, you can describe it as space-time itself ringing. And so, for example, I used uh, this gong that Melissa described, mentioned earlier, to demonstrate that sort of ringing. And, and we're about to hear it. He's going to so raise it up from its if velvet picture, platform and Picture hit the it with Big a Bang, and following the Big Bang, there's an incredible oscillation generated, which over time decays very, very slowly into our present time. And what I discovered is that there were nearly exactly seven such oscillations. That's a very slow frequency. And we will be very quiet when he rings this so that you will be able to hear it sort of penetrates your skull and fades off in layers. And he finally silenced it as it <laughs> diminished, diminished, diminished by putting his wand against the lower edge of the crystal pyramid. And now we're back to conversation. So, so that example was uh, real sound. Now, when the universe wiggles like that, it does not produce sound. Contrary to what you see on these Star Trek movies, you hear a rocket whooshing by. Mm-hmm. Sound doesn't carry in space. It's similar to sound, so it still wiggles, and there are so many wiggles per second, and these are known as frequency oscillations per second. And like I said, what I discovered was that there are seven of these cycles since the universe began to the present time. Very, very small, very uh, difficult to analyze, but I did succeed in doing that, and Basically, it's being ignored right now, which is not surprising because it's completely new. Yes, I read it was controversial, (laughs) which is always a sign of new discovery. So how does the bending of light fit in with this dark energy? Well, it, it, it fits in only in that gravity describes all of that. Okay. So gravity is responsible for the bending of light. Gravity is also responsible for this wave. But it would be a new form of gravity, which is part of the controversial aspect. Uh, and that's very difficult to describe. Waves are generally in two forms, transverse and longitudinal. Transverse is like light waves. The wiggle occurs side to side. A longitudinal wave, the wiggle occurs in the direction that you're looking. And this kind of wave is a gravity wave, but... A traditional gravity wave is a transverse wave. It wiggles from side to side. 
this gravity wave is a longitudinal wave, which has never been observed before. So if you're looking out toward the beginning of, the, of time to stars and galaxies very, very far away, you can think of the universe wiggling in the direction that you're looking. It's almost like it's breathing. Think of the space wiggling back and forth along your line of sight. And that's basically what I think I've observed. And that has to be verified by other scientists. And typically, scientists are very skeptical, you know, unless there's some reason to go analyze it themselves or um, maybe when they become desperate, they'll start looking at new methods. But right now, it's published, and I'm pursuing further work to support that. Well, I would just like to understand how your mind works. I looked back, and I saw when you were um, in the Army, you did lab work on... What might be causing the red spots on Jupiter? It just seems like how I'd want to hear about that if you can tell us. But I want to just try to understand. Going way back into your childhood, were you? Where does this? Everyone's curious about some things, but few of us have the ability to um, make the kinds of mental leaps that you do to come up with these theories. What interests you in this? Why? Why do you work this way? That's a good question. Um, I've wondered about that myself. I can, I can give you a strange example. Okay. And when I was a senior in high school, while everybody else was dating, having a grand time, going to balls and, you know, whatever, um, I was building an atom smasher in my basement, <laughs> which I succeeded in doing. An atom smasher. And a proton accelerator, a real one. Oh, my gosh. And uh, I... I came awful close to making it actually work. The, the bottom line is, that in the end, it didn't quite work, and it's a good thing because it was running on 400,000 volts, and I would have had x-rays emitted if, I, if it was actually working, and I wasn't that smart yeah. <laughs> at the time to realize that it would generate x-rays. But everything else worked on that, um, and that was for a high school physics project. So that... That's the kind of thing I've been doing for a long time. Eventually, I got into physics. I decided physics was the thing that really interested me because it was so fundamental that it was, in my opinion, the foundation of all the sciences. So I, I, I did that. Um, it's a long story of how I got involved with West Point, but it, that's correct. When I was drafted and I served in the Army for two years, I ended up working in a laboratory at West Point, uh, not far from here, um, for um, an officer, Lieutenant Colonel William B. Street, who at the time was the head of this particular laboratory and an academic at West Point. I was a private first class, working side by side with a lieutenant colonel. Quite an opportunity. I just don't understand. I think of West Point as, of course, being oriented towards warfare. What did Red well, Spots West on Point, Jupiter have West to Point do? has two major departments. They have an academic department mm -hmm. and a strategic um, department where they uh, do military, it's called tactics, where yeah. they do military tactics and military studies. But on the academic side, they pursue all the same things that a university pursues. I see. So you, you can end up with, you'll get a bachelor's degree in science there. Uh, and you can major in chemistry, uh, physics, or whatever. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Street was 
uh, in the chemical engineering department at the time at West Point. And he had developed a laboratory there called the Science Research Laboratory. Um, and through a very long, very odd process, um, I ended up getting drafted, uh, went to basic training, and because of my experience at where I got my bachelor's degree at Washington University in St. Louis, um, I ended up with uh, contacts and a position uh, ultimately at the Los Alamos Laboratory uh, just before I entered graduate school. This was right after I got my bachelor's degree. Uh, I made contacts at uh, Los Alamos um, with the people I was working for um, for two, this was one summer that, uh, in advance of the Army event. Um, that eventually led to my being sent to West Point. And tell us a little about the research on Jupiter. Well, at West Point, Colonel Street ran a high-pressure, low-temperature laboratory, so he did studies of atmospheres at very high pressures and very low temperatures. Uh, and he concentrated on hydrogen-helium mixtures, but he simulated that with argon heavy gases, rare gases. And one of the places where this is seen is the planet Jupiter, also on Saturn. But Jupiter was of particular interest to him, and he had published on the atmosphere of Jupiter. And he would get thermodynamic information on the atmosphere. When you go down from Jupiter's atmosphere, and Juno is doing this right now as we speak, um, the pressure becomes very high, millions of pounds per square inch, eventually when you get deep enough. And the temperatures also get high. Um, and when th this combination of pressure and temperature causes the hydrogen and helium in the atmosphere to mix in certain unusual ways. And that's what Colonel Street was studying. When I joined his laboratory, as, remember I was a private first class, mm -hmm. um, I got into his work, had some thoughts about it, and not long after I got there, I was working with him, helping him with the high-pressure, low-temperature measurements, where I basically had a new idea for him to try, and that's using sound, ultrasound, to help him make measurements of these fluids. These are rare gases at high pressure and low temperatures, uh, you know, 200 degrees below zero, two, 300 degrees below zero. And he took me up on these ideas. We had a machinist there. We made a, an ultrasound probe. And by um, measuring, again, this is waves, so waves is my big deal, mm -hmm. partly. So I knew a lot about acoustics. Using those measurements, it enhanced his own work, and we published together. So, in fact, uh, my first publication was a publication with Lieutenant Colonel Street just after my uh, two-year uh, stint in the Army. And that made Time Magazine. Oh, my goodness. So I am in Time Magazine, <laughs> July issue, 1970. And what was the gist of the Time article? The gist of the Time article was that there, there was this private first class working for Lieutenant Colonel Street and the Army um, doing measurements or analyzing measurements of the great red spot on the planet Jupiter. So it was... A unique, a unique thing. Yeah, what a start to a career. So, but all these years later, with Juno now there, is it satisfying to see as some of the things that you were just kind of well theorizing? Uh, yeah, that's, being... that's a great question. And Colonel Street is still around, oh, wow. and I'm in contact with him. Uh, his 
his dream would be to have our theory, which we published in, in, in that publication in the Army, uh, to have that theory come true. And the likelihood is it probably not. Uh, the Great Red Spot is considered a, a, ma- a monster storm on Jupiter. Um, you have to ask the question, how can a storm last since Galileo, who made the first yeah. observations of the Red Spot? Um, it's a tough question, and I believe it's not as simple as they make it to be. I think that further study of the Great Red Spot on Jupiter will probably reveal that there's something solid under the surface that's causing that spot to remain stable. It, it gets larger and smaller, it changes colors, but it never goes away. So lots of these questions that you entertain and find answers for are the kind that just expand mankind's knowledge. It isn't necessarily... I was looking through, you have all these patents for very practical things. That's right, yeah. Um, but now you're into well, this... Now, now you've discovered a very curious thing about me. Okay. In, in fact, that, that's pretty interesting. Yes, I've, I've led two lives. Um, I get a paycheck, which I got from General Electric, which supported my family. That was my number one priority. Um, I basically followed Einstein's advice, which is think about that paycheck first and your dreams later. So he was very practical initially also. Um, Worked at the patent office, had a number of jobs, and could not get into academics and so on. From my point of view, I had children in graduate school. So my first objective was to get a, a job with a salary, a decent salary. Academics was not very good at that time. So I... I joined United Technology in Hartford, Connecticut, worked there for 16 years, got an offer to work here at General Electric at their research center, and I moved up into this area. And this is where I met Judy. A happy thing. Yes, (laughs) one one of the major events of my life. Um, And that was a practical job. But I've always had dreams and I've always pursued those dreams as well. So it was, a, um, in a sense, two roads I was taking. Um, the very practical approach as a scientist, and this was doing experimental physics in a laboratory. But at the same time, I really was interested in theory. I taught myself general relativity. I loved geometry, which is the root of all of this. In high school geometry, I basically aced the class. So um, the teacher would come to me when all the other students couldn't solve their proofs. But geometry was one of the loves I've always had, and that evolved into general relativity, which is the ultimate form of geometry. So all of this time I've been pursuing that sort of thing, and I saw my work at GE as an opportunity in my own time to continue that work because it was a fairly practical job. You know, you work... Uh, in a standard period, you get a paycheck. But I love that work as well and um, certainly put a lot of time into it, at the same time pursuing my own dreams. So by the time I retired from GE, I had already built up a reputation and sufficient knowledge in these other areas to continue. So what I'm doing now, in fact, is looking at that other side. 
So unlike the Frost poem where two roads diverged in yellow woods and you took the one less traveled by, you kept these parallel ran, roads. These ran parallel. Although you had the paycheck for the practical inventions, you I, also I still cons- pursued. pursued your dreams. Yeah, and that, it pretty. seems like many times in your writing and just now you reference Einstein. Is he sort of a hero or model? Or He's, he, is, he always has been a model. Uh-huh. I, I'm not quite sure why, but probably related to my love of geometry, which naturally led in that direction. And I realized that Einstein had achieved um, the ultimate in geometry. Um, of course, he based his work on other famous mathematicians, in particular a fellow named Riemann. And he got advice from colleagues and so on that worked with him. But since I'm interested in applied physics as well as theoretical, the application of this, these mathematical concepts like Riemann did was actually done by Einstein. Hmm. So it's highly theoretical physics, but from a mathematician's point of view, it's applied mathematics. Mathematicians really don't care whether there's an application for their fundamental work or not. I mean, the ultimate foundation of the universe is not physics, it's mathematics. But a physicist takes that and applies it to knowledge obtained from the universe. And to me, that, that was important because it, I, I can't quite conceive of the abstraction in pure mathematics, but when you attach physics to it, things make sense. And that's the sort of thing I pursued. And do you have any particular... You have many large questions, but are, is there is there a, a favorite one or a most important one that in the time left on this earth because we're <laughs> temporal that you hope to grapple with? No, um, you know, I, I work, um, on problems that I've already started. I, I keep telling myself I'm not likely to think of another new idea, but that never happens. It seems like I get a new idea every week. So I can't quite say where it's all going to go, but currently I'm pursuing this oscillation concept quite a bit. And in doing that, I've discovered a number of other people's works that I also feel I have to comment on. And so it leads, you know, one question leads to another, and that's the way it's working. Um, I I don't have a specific goal in mind, uh, you know, like a bucket list, say, in science uh, for the future. So it's a day at a time. Well, I just think it's great that not only are you having one question lead to another, but you take the time and put the energy in to talking to lay people like myself and at the Dudley well, Observatory to kind of increase our our view of the universe that's around us all, but has so many unknowables. That's That's one of the things I do enjoy. So um, I've discovered I'm very good at taking extremely abstract concepts and you know giving them to the general public in an understandable way. But that only comes through a great deal of pain. <laughs> I have to understand the subject so well that I can explain it to you. And when that happens, that, that's 
it pleases me very much. And I do give a lot of public presentations as a result of that, and people seem to like it. Um, it's a little late in my career and life to be doing that, but I really don't care. So uh, I understand physicists right, uh, reach their peak like Einstein at age 26, but um, <laughs> you're I'm, still I'm, going. <laughs> I'm doing perfectly well <laughs> with new ideas. Well, thank you for sharing this time with us. I consider it a great gift. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much for having me.